Hello and welcome back to another episode of All the Gear But No Idea. And today we're going to have a really interesting conversation. It's particularly for artists, I think, but generally it's going to be very interesting to learn all about venues because today I'm joined by Beverly Wittrick, who is the strategic director of the Music Venues Trust in the UK, which is a charity that works for grassroots venues. And yeah, so grassroots venues are there to benefit artists. No giant artists would be where they were if it weren't for these small venues that they started playing in. And it's amazing that there's now a charity here who's backing them. So yeah, welcome Beverly. How are you going? And I'm excited to have you here. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Great. So let's start with just generally what the Music Venue Trust is. I know I briefed it a little bit and why why you started this. Okay, so Music Venue Trust is a registered charity that was created in 2014 to protect, secure and improve the grassroots music venues of the UK. We had just had our seventh birthday this week. And (laughs) thank you. It's funny, one of those where I didn't realise till Facebook told me that on this year, seven years ago, (laughs) we actually announced the charity. Yeah. But I think I think time's gone a bit strange for everyone in 2020 and 21. So yeah, probably not that surprising. (laughs) Um, The organisation was created by Mark David, who's our CEO. And he's also the co-owner of the Tunbridge Wells Forum, which is a grassroots music venue in the southeast of England. And he had been having conversations for a long time about the sorts of challenges for venues in the sector with other people who worked in other venues, other venue owners and other people in the music industry who were basically horrified at how many venues were closing and how little seemed to be possible to do for them because they were all operating in isolation in their their own communities but there was no no combined forces no joint representation for them so he came up with the idea of creating an organization to do that to bring them together and I helped research it and come up with a sort of a plan that looked like an organization Um, So that's what we announced in 2014. So we created the organisation with the hope of presenting a united force for venues and trying to halt the closures that had been happening over the past few years. But I don't think any of us had any idea quite what we were getting into or quite how Mm -hmm. mammoth a task we were undertaking. Yeah. And was it instant positive response? Uh, Well, no, there wasn't. There was quite a long period of trying to explain why we wanted to do this and also to win the trust of the venues. So one of the main things that we worked on in the early days was um, realising our first Venues Day, which has since become an annual event. But Venues Day 2014 was where we paid for lots of venues to come together in a room and we explained why we thought they'd be better working together and when we kind of won that argument we then had to say okay so you think somebody needs to represent you is it us and thankfully they said yes so it really kind of grew from there from January 2015 we created our music venues alliance which was the free to join association of venues and I remember being really excited when the first 20 venues joined. Uh, We now have, I think it's 936 (laughs) venues. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's grown quite a lot. Yeah. So the difference between the trust and the alliance is the trust more about like, uh, I don't know, like funding and that kind of stuff. And then the alliance is more of a networking kind of thing. Absolutely. The trust is the charity. So we, we are a legal body that has to operate by charity rules. We have our accounts that are subject to public scrutiny and we have a board of trustees. So the trust does the work on behalf of the Alliance. The Alliance is a loose grouping of venues that 
filled in a form saying I'd like to be part of this. Okay. So what we normally say is Music Venue Trust works on behalf of Music Venues Alliance members. Gotcha. And how that how that really works is, is that sometimes people will say, oh, this venue's in trouble. And we'll say, OK, in order for us to help them, they need to join the Music Venues Alliance so that we can know the right way to talk to them and get the right information out of them in order that we can look at what it is that's threatening them. Yeah. So we had to, we had to create systems. So, yeah, the trust works for the venues in the alliance. Gotcha, yeah. And it's grassroots venues. So what is a grassroots venue? And when do you stop being a grassroots venue? <laughs> a grassroots music venue, th this is kind of part of the funniest story of Music Venue Trust, to be honest, is that when we started working in this sector, it was called the toilet circuit. <laughs> it was a bunch of independent venues, mostly small, but they were collectively known in the industry as this is the toilet circuit. And it's particularly funny because Tunbridge Wells Forum, Mark's venue, actually is a converted public toilet. So <laughs> you could kind of understand, you know, why yeah. it's called the toilet circuit. But we also were really clear that you can't win any arguments with government by calling it a toilet circuit. You have to think of something a bit more dynamic and a bit more expressive. So... First of all, we were talking about small venues because most of them are, but not every small venue performs the role of what we define as a grassroots music venue. So we had to come up with a better definition. So in 2015, while we were doing a piece of work for the then mayor of London who wanted to examine what was happening to the small venues in London. We worked on a definition of what constitutes a grassroots music venue. And we decided that it was defined more by intent than by size. So a grassroots music venue is one in which the, the raison d'etre or the main focus of the team that run the venue is about putting on music, developing artists, artists with new music. It's about a wish to nurture music and musical talent, which is why we always say that the link between the grassroots venues and the artists is so incredibly important. Yeah. Those venues are only run because we all believe that artists need somewhere to try out new work or to hone their skills or to be a developing artist before they go on to seek massive success, you know, on a larger scale. And of course, there are artists who are never going to be huge arena artists. There's some artists who sit really comfortably at a smaller scale in a more community sort of experimental focus. So a grassroots music venue is somewhere that is focused around those artists in terms of creating the right environment to thrive. And the other things that a venue does are quite often done to make that possible. So really easy test. Is it a pub that puts on music or is it a grassroots music venue? If it, the people that run it do it because they love music and the centre of their management of that venue is about what music's on and why, then it's a grassroots music venue. Alcohol is sold, quite possibly club nights are put on, comedy might be put on, other activity might happen there, but those things are ancillary to it's about the music. Mm. If you've got a pub that's open day and night to sell booze, to sell food, and sometimes they stick some music on in the corner because the punters like it, it's not a grassroots music venue, it's a pub that puts on music. Mm -hmm. To be really clear, a grassroots music venue might be a pub that sure. is open lots of hours, but the music is a really important part of their identity and they have a space in which the music happens. They probably sell tickets for the music. So there's a split between the drinkers and the people who come for the music. But to us, a grassroots music venue is defined by its commitment to its music. Okay. And you're UK based, but does are the majority of the venues based in London? No. Oh, 
The majority of the <laughs> venues are based in England. Okay. Uh, we do have Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish venues, but we do have more in England than in the other nations of the UK. But I'm delighted to say that they are not all in London. We have, I think it's around about 180 now in London. Mm-hmm. But there are 930-odd in the membership. Yeah, yeah, true. I just thought, because London, with its rent prices going up, I'm like, I'm sure most of these venues are needing help. So they've turned to you, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of music venues in London. I mean, obviously, any major city is a hub. So we have a lot of venues in Manchester. We have a lot of venues in Glasgow. You know, there tend to be a lot of venues in creative cities. And yes, they do have some special challenges, particularly around the buildings they're based in. But one of the the joys about working in MVT and the MVA membership as it's grown is that we do also have some venues in quite rural places. We've we've got a venue on the Isle of Skye in our membership, which I was so happy when they joined. I was like, this is super exciting. And we have some venues in rural parts of particularly Scotland and Wales, where that venue is super important because it is the only place that communities for miles around can go and see developing musicians. Yeah. So we have a sort of slightly different relationship with venues in metropolitan centres and venues that are the only one in other communities, but they're all super important because they make up the cultural infrastructure of the UK, the music infrastructure for musicians and one of my absolute nightmares that I sometimes fear is a a sort of developing scenario where those rural venues or those small town venues are not supported and we end up with you can only be a musician or enjoy live music if you live in a major city Mm. because I just think that would be so detrimental to the music of the UK yeah because you know we we have musicians in all sorts of far-flung places on who come from communities all over the place they may end up moving to a Glasgow or a Manchester or a London or or, you know another centre but they might have grown up somewhere with only one venue in in quite a sort of um non somewhere not seen as a real cultural hub but they still found the music and they still developed a passion for it and I think that's a really important part of what Music Venue Trust does. And do these small venues in these smaller towns do they suffer because artists want to tour in the bigger cities or they do generally get a lot of like nights many artists do come to these places? It's a very mixed picture and it's definitely something that we're giving quite a lot of attention to because it's not necessarily where the artists want to go it's it's kind of where tours are rooted and you know we're talking about other parts of the industry and where their focus might lie Mm. and what has definitely happened over the last 30 years which may actually change with Brexit and Covid and the fact that People are now talking more about national tours and obviously less about international tours because at the moment they're just off the table. But artists used to do very extensive UK-only tours, maybe 20 to 30 dates. And in recent years, a lot of those have reduced down to maybe eight dates in the UK. And then you go across to Europe where there's lots of other opportunities and, of course, amazing audiences. I think what's really interesting with the current challenges we're facing is it could actually be a bit of a silver lining for some of our venues where people rediscover on tours that they're now looking at, they rediscover some of those venues in what they consider secondary and tertiary towns. But we've actually been having a lot of conversation about trying to encourage artist teams to look at these places as well because it's a bit of a nonsense to think that if your artist goes and plays in Manchester that also covers any audience in Liverpool or anywhere in the northwest of England because we've got lots of great venues in Liverpool we've got lots of venues in the greater Manchester area you know somebody could go and tour four dates in the northwest just going to Manchester doesn't just do it 
Exactly. In the same way that playing in London is not going to bring in everyone in the southeast of England, particularly Mm. if you're only playing 150 cap venue. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some really interesting dynamics going on at the moment about the potential for more dates to reach more audiences because if those venues still exist so use them or lose them yeah can't put it better myself (laughs) yeah and there's the like theory that an artist needs a thousand true true fans to be successful and I guess in these smaller venues in these smaller parts of the country is kind of where you would get those fans because that these concerts are always more intimate there's more of an opportunity to meet the artist afterwards and that kind of thing and that's where you can really like form a bond to someone and then you want to support their career so yeah it's definitely something you need to support like I know I think I went to university in Guildford so we had the boiler room which was amazing I, I remember the first time I walked in there it's like the walls are covered in posters and the roof as well and it was like I was seeing names of artists I really love I know for sure there was an Ed Sheeran poster up there and to think about seeing Ed Sheeran in the boiler room whenever that was is crazy like that's just so cool to me and yeah I would always look forward to the uh, the gigs in the small venues because I knew that it was going to be nice it was going to be a room full of people who want to be there for the artist going to be quiet and attentive and then there's probably the chance to have a chat with the artist afterwards and like tell them that you appreciate them so yeah that yeah it's really it's a lovely thing to just be able to enjoy an artist in the small area and I can imagine that in the next year or so things are really going to change because of corona and yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's a really it's a really interesting one I mean the experience that you describe obviously is is what we hear a lot but for artists as well we've had so much support in the last year of artists doing things for the Save Our Venues campaign that 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 we've been running to try and support our work and to support these venues and they absolutely value playing in those small venues because they know that that's where not only did they hone their own skills, but it's where they kind of learned to connect with audiences. And they absolutely do have relationships now with fans that they met on that circuit, even if they're large scale bands now. Yeah. And it does create bonds. It creates obviously in the fortunate fan who has that experience and maybe has a chat with them afterwards, which, you know, I, I remember doing that as well. You do you do have a real affection for the artist that you know you might have had a drink at the bar with after the gig or you, you had a, a chance to chat with. When you then see them on a major stage, you feel invested in that. Mm. And the artists know that. They know that the, the grassroots venues are vital to them building the career. It, it, there aren't that many artists that, that can go to superstardom without the period of honing the skills and connecting with that way and do you also work with these showcase festivals like the great escape and liverpool sound city stuff like that does that play into it a bit because obviously these things are put on for growing artist talent and then the small venues are doing the same kind of thing do they tie in it at all we we have we've been really lucky over the last few years to have developing relationships in all sorts of directions. I mean, certainly the great escape of being quite supportive and, and we've, we quite often end up speaking on the panels at some of these events because there's a growing relationship between festivals and the venues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, actually, I, I would say again, the music industry as a whole has been pretty supportive. No, I'm gonna take that back. The live industry has been really supportive <laughs> of save our venues it's been a little bit more mixed from the recorded side because they see themselves slightly more apart from the live side which is interesting but I would say that yeah over the last few years recognition for the importance of grassroots music venues has definitely grown in the whole of the live industry you know this idea that that our venues are their research and development department of the industry is much more acknowledged in live. We're still working on it with recorded and publishing. 
And you're the strategic director. So what's your role? Are you coming up with new ways of campaigning? Are you approaching the government? What do you do? Well, that's a really good <laughs> question. I, well, for a long time, I was the only full-time member of staff. So in a, in a lot of ways, it was kind of slightly made up title, making me sound a bit more grand than I am, <laughs> because it just, it just meant I was the one that ran the charity. Okay. Yeah. Um, these days, I operationally, I run things. So I manage the team and um, the program of work that we do. I don't get involved in all the government meetings and stuff. Mark does that, fortunately. That's a CEO job. Yeah. But yes, I, I am at the moment, I'm trying to do quite a lot of work of what happens post-COVID for Music Venue Trust because we were a teeny tiny charity. We had two full-time and two part-time staff a year ago. And then in order to protect our venues and do the best we could during COVID, we suddenly took on loads and loads of temporary coordinators and other people and I suddenly found myself managing 20 people yeah which was a bit of a shock to the system <laughs> but has also been absolutely necessary and wonderful yeah. and we're incredibly grateful to absolutely every music fan every artist every other music industry body or anyone else that donated money to save our venues because that enabled us to take on all these extra people to provide the venues with the support. So my job now is to work out what we do coming out of COVID to make a transition from our temporary structure to something that's more sustainable. Because the other thing is that actually quite a lot of our coordinators actually have venues to run. So at some point they've got to go back to running their own venues rather than helping other venues apply for yeah. money and you know fill in forms and do all the stuff they need to do. So yeah, the strategy at the moment is how do we move from where we are now to something that longer term will still be able to help venues, but maybe just not in quite such a hands-on and full-on way as we've done in the last 12 months. Yeah. And in the beginning, did you have any experiences of being a woman in this, uh, like in the highest position in the in the charity and approaching these venues, especially like dealing with the live industry where it's so male dominated? Did you ever struggle with being taken seriously, like professionally, did sexism, did you have to deal with that in any way? Okay, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, True. Right, so I my background is more in arts and culture than in the music industry. Yeah. I started doing music industry stuff more as a sort of part-time thing. I, I took a career break to have children. So I started doing more music industry stuff much later because I'm not young. And when when we did when we started doing music venue trust, I did have some real concerns about not being known in the music industry and having to sort of build relationships sort of from scratch. And I was quite daunted by that. I think there are some advantages to being a bit older and caring less what people think. And I think the the main thing that helped was realizing quite quickly that people would have to take me seriously because I was the expert in the room about grassroots music venues so I think there are definitely some times where it's very useful to have a male CEO because he might be listened to in some arenas more than me yeah but sometimes that's not necessarily just because it's male. It's also because he's actually been in the music industry for 30 odd years. True. Yeah. Whereas I am more of a newbie. But I think what, what is quite good to see is that in a relatively short time, I think people have seen that I know what I'm talking about. And that has given me opportunity actually to bring younger women into the team. I mean, Music Venue Trust have a core team of five, four of us are women. That is a good, so, good percentage. 
<laughs> so we do have a male CEO, but Clara, who's our venue support manager, she um, she came to us as a part-time administrator three years ago and has worked her way up. And then Sarah and Mena then came to us as part-time administrators. And Sarah is now events, projects and communications and Mena is research projects and communications. And they're all now full-time. So yeah, we have, we have a core team of five and four of us are women. So yeah. I think although we do work with a lot of fantastic men in our coordinator and consultant team, we are very aware of championing bright women in the in their roles and trying to highlight the fact that the sector has historically been seen as quite male yeah and therefore it's really really important to highlight strong women in the sector and also just to try and look at getting to a a better balance as we move forward so our board is 50 50 male female and our team we're doing quite well on women our gurus who are our experts who offer free advice to venues in trouble are overwhelmingly male but then that's partly because they voluntarily give time in their positions of authority in the legal profession or the planning professional, the acoustics professional, you know, whatever. And there just are more men in those jobs at the moment. Yeah. So there's, there's work to do. But what I would also say is there are a lot of very supportive men in this sector about um, trying to make changes in diversity in lots of ways. We're not mm -hmm. there yet, but we're aware of the issues no that sounds really great it's amazing to hear if only your diversity split was reflected in the whole music industry would be great <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I mean I, I have to say the whole of diversity is challenging mm. I mean you know at the moment we 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 are quite a white team which obviously yeah is not where we want to be. And that's something that we will be working on as we move forward. But we've made some real some real advances in gender at least. So that's the bit we, we can do for now. Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, it depends on who's best for the job. So you can't, yeah, tick every single box instantly. But yeah, I think also from what I've heard of and spoken to many women, who are in these higher positions they were probably at a company and they had a like higher female mentor or boss or whatever and so I think it kind of has a trickle-on effect so maybe like the I don't remember their names but the um, people that are working for you maybe if they go off in the future and start their own companies then maybe they'll also hire great women it will just have this like snowball effect of generally getting more women in the industry so yeah yeah I'm, sh I'm sure that's true I mean they're they're three very um very strong very bright very capable women and I think whether they stay with us or they go somewhere else I think they're all going to achieve great things yeah and now I want to talk about the past year of the world <laughs> and how <laughs> how music venues trust maybe changed from the beginning of 2020 to now in terms of maybe what you've had to do and yeah kind of how things look because it doesn't look like the virus is going anywhere so maybe these venues are in real danger or has it improved in this kind of the second part of the year or yeah explain please <laughs> okay we are a very practical organization and we try to be quite a positive organization so I think it's really interesting that quite often people are like oh you're just really fixated on venue closures and the problems and that's not really who we are at all so what we did is we realized very early on 
that COVID was going to be an issue. And we actually started collecting data on the 9th of March to see what the impact was already being on venues before they were actually mandated by government to close on the 20th of March. So we fortunately, we had systems and staff that could kick into doing things quite quickly. We also were quite used to doing quite a lot of online meetings and things because we're not we're not all geographically close. So that was really fortunate for us. We had all these systems already in place for meeting online and sharing things on Google Docs and on all of that. So I think because of that, we could do things quite quickly yeah. and we responded quite quickly. So what we've been really careful to do is always look at the facts. And if we don't know something, go off and research it. So Mark doesn't sleep very much. And one of the things he's got into is, is being like a massive vaccine bore. He knows everything about <laughs> the vaccines and about, yeah. you know, testing. And he's really into data. And I have to say, actually, men is a real data head as well. So we've been really monitoring situation as regards public health situation. We got into a partnership with um, some other organisations in North America, developing a strategy called REVS or Reopen Every Venue Safely. We started working on that with them last spring. Um, we got ourselves on lots of government working groups and lots of music industry working groups and in conversations with UK government and Scottish and Welsh government so that we could make sure that whatever was developing um, included grassroots music venues when they were looking at funding or they were looking at um, temporary reopening or, or other measures. And what all of that means is that when the roadmap to reopening was announced mm -hmm. for England, because obviously, other parts of the UK haven't got a clear roadmap at the moment. It's a bit more esoteric. But the UK has got these notional data points or dates at the moment at which distance gigs may come back or full gigs may come back. And we were able to look at that and compare it to the data around how many people are likely to be vaccinated, how many people are ill at the moment, the way the virus is going. Obviously, with the codicil that variants do throw spanners in the works. But we looked at the data and the earliest dates and when, yeah, those are actually quite reasonable. Unusually, <laughs> there is a basis to opening things up in the way that's being suggested. And therefore, we are working towards tools and information for venues to be organising activity for this summer, because we do believe there will be live music this summer. Now, we believe there will be live music at our scale. Yeah. Obviously, live music at a larger scale is much more challenging. And we are in weekly meetings with other parts of the industry where it's more complicated for them because... Although everything that's around event organization needs a lead in time, the lead in time is less if you're at a grassroots music venue scale than obviously if you're putting on a festival or doing a gig in an arena. But we, we actually are hopeful that there will be live music this summer. We're not guaranteeing it will be on the 21st of March, which obviously is the date that everybody got tremendously excited about because it's not a date, it's an earliest date at the moment for full return but the the stages announced in the roadmap are reasonable and we will be producing all sorts of things for our venues about mitigations they can put in measures that they should put in to reassure their audience that their audience, their team, and any artist, because it's important, it's everyone, that their venue is as safe as it can possibly be when they are allowed to open. And your grassroots venues, would they have to, if there's um, restrictions in place as to how many people can be in the venues, is that going to 
like it's not going to necessarily save the venue if their revenue is a lot lower by because ticket price they can't sell as many tickets so will they still need this like government funding and that kind of thing again it's a quite complex picture across the whole uk if you take english venues um at the moment there are quite a lot of venues who have put in a funding application for cultural recovery fund money round two which is the money to tide them over until the end of june if they're successful with their applications they will have enough money to survive and they could potentially do socially distanced shows with quite small tickets ticket sales sales and still afford to do them because they will have have the cushion of money that enables them to do that mm. so some of them have specifically applied for funding with the hope that it enables them to do uh, activity that will lose them money, but they want to do it because it will allow artists to do work. It will allow their team to come back, get crews back to work, and it will allow a small audience to experience live music again. Mm-hmm. For those venues that don't have that money, that don't have access to the funding, it is a lot trickier. And there probably are a lot of venues that are currently looking at the proposed opening schedule and saying, right, we're going to have to wait until we can be fully open with a full audience. So it's a mixed picture. At the moment, the way things are laid out, there is a data point to be achieved that they're talking about around mid-May, where some activity could open with social distancing, so reduced audiences. Hopefully that will mean some gigs will happen, but certainly not in every venue. Yeah. At the moment, the June date looks more likely if that data point is reached, and that's when you'll see more venues open. But we have, we've worked with as many of our Music Venues Alliance members as we can over this last 12 months. There, we have some venues who we've marked green because we know that they're reasonably safe at the moment. Some are amber, they're in a slightly precarious situation, but we're still directing them towards whichever support is available, be it furloughing their staff or money given out through local authorities or you know cultural funding or whatever. Some of them, well, we have 20 at the moment that are red venues, which are the ones that, who are most in danger of closure. But then we have our own special traffic light, which is a blue traffic light, because those are the venues that are not communicating with us. So we don't know whether that's because they're fine or because they're going to close. Yeah. So there is a real concern around that group of venues that we just don't have the information about at the moment. And it is possible that some of them are hanging on at the moment, but can't make it through till the summer. And because they're not in communication, we can't point them in the direction of things that could possibly help them. And we may emerge from this and some of them are just gone, but we didn't know, so we couldn't help them. And that's the worry at the moment is, you know, ones that are red, we can come up with strategies to help. The blue ones, that's harder. Yeah. And if a venue closes, can it reopen or is it probably closed because it's under like a an amount of debt they're not, never going to recover from? That brings us on to one of the, the really big challenges for the sector. So 93% of grassroots music venues in the UK operate in rented premises. So only 7% of them own the building that they operate in. And so the greatest threat to any venue is always, what does the owner of the building want to do? So sometimes the biggest threat to the venue is the owner wants to sell the building or redevelop the building. And there isn't much that anyone can do about that. But if the venue if the team that run the venue are still intact and they can find other premises, that venue can come back. So we have one venue at the moment, a Doncaster venue called Woolpack Live, who lost their building, but the team are seeking another building so that Woolpack Live can come back. Um, 
there are other venues where the team that run the venue maybe can't cope anymore or somebody dies so Zanzibar in Liverpool Tony who ran that venue sadly he died last year and so at the moment not only is that venue closed for COVID but it doesn't have an operator however there are interested parties waiting in the wings who would like to take over the Zanzibar if the person who rents the building is open to that that venue may come back yeah so it's it's a really kind of nuanced picture mm-hmm. but what we generally say is if a venue is completely lost if the building is lost the people that ran it just can't do it anymore everything goes you know they have to sell the kit because there are debts and all of that bringing it back is really really tough because it costs round about five hundred thousand pounds to start a venue these days wow oh my god <laughs> so so because it's an expensive business you know let's be really clear grassroots music venues are not run by people who want to make money they're run by mavericks who love live music exactly yeah (laughs) so nobody goes into this because they think they're going to make money they go into it because they think they might eke out a living while doing something they love and we're kind of in the sweet spot with some of them where they make just an enough or some of them they subsidize running a venue off other activity mm-hmm. but people who want to start a new venue and that delightfully there are still some crazy people out there who come to us and say I'm going to open a grassroots music venue and you <laughs> say fantastic are you okay <laughs> um <laughs> it's it's a tough gig it's yeah. really tough to open a new venue but it's not impossible but the main thing I'm giving really long answers to all of your questions. The basic answer, the basic answer is in the past, venues used to close and other ones would open and take their place. That stopped happening about 20 years ago. And huge, huge numbers of venues were lost while people didn't really realize that that wasn't working anymore. And I think particularly a lot of the industry still believed that oh that's okay if that venue goes another one will come in its place that didn't happen but that's part of the story why people are now acknowledging that music venue trust is needed and that venues do need support so even before the pandemic venues were always sort of at risk of closure predominantly because of what the owner of the building may want to do with it like turning Uh, into housing or something like that well, yeah, that or, or I mean, the, the buildings in which they're housed is a threat in, in several ways. One, because some landlords are incredibly supportive, but a lot of them are not invested in what goes in on in there. And because it's hard to make money out of a venue, a small venue, they might decide that they'd want an easier tenant who can pay the money they want better. The other big threat to venues a lot of the time has been gentrification it has been people moving in nearby and complaining yeah and um we tried to do a lot of work around that and we did manage to get agent of change principle into planning policy in england and wales and planning law in scotland but that only covers new development so if a new apartment block is built near an existing venue the the potential for the people who move into that complaining about the venue has to be assessed at planning stage and the developer has to mitigate against that in terms of you know double glazing or the way it's designed or doing things that take into account a venue's already there agent of change does not extend to somebody converting office space above a venue or shop space space below a venue or you know it's only about new build where, where there's a change of use so threats of of com- noise complaints still are an issue and the worry that kind of comes out of the changes wrought by COVID on towns and city centres is with the closure of more retail there's likely to be a lot more development of residential in the very places that music venues inhabit And a big one for us has been that a music venue exists in a space that mostly had offices. So people went 
home before the noise started. But once those offices or that area changes into being more residential, people are coming home to the place they live at the very time that the music is happening. Yeah. So it's a big issue about town and city centres and what those are for and also what people's expectations are. Is it reasonable to say if you want to live in a town or city centre because it's an exciting place to live, you have to accept that it won't be as quiet as living in the middle of the countryside? Yeah, I mean, that's what always... I know during my university time, there was a little campaign to save. I think it was the start in in Guildford. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just seems a little bit of a crazy thing that people move in next to a venue and then are complaining about the noise. Like you should know that that's going to happen if you're next to a music venue. I will say it's not unique to music venues. I do know of people who've bought apartments behind the stage door of a West End theatre and then complain that there's noise from the the loadout. And I have also read about people who've moved to the countryside and complain the sheep are too loud. (laughs) So, you know, people are odd. People are odd. What can you say? (laughs) (laughs) Once I read that there was a completely different, but a British lady went to Spain and then like complain about, they're being like everyone speaking Spanish something like that I'm like yeah. insane that's crazy <laughs> yeah common sense is um not Lacking always some. <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh my god yes um but in terms of getting support and getting people to especially in terms of then donating to the music venue trust to be able to help these grassroots venues does this come mainly from artists do you get support from the larger venues um or is it through sponsorship like how do you keep it afloat right well this is the thing that has changed massively in the last 12 months so the early days of music venue trust were very much a combination of sponsorship around venues day our one networking event every year um which historically raised enough money to run the event and invite the venue owners for free or for reduced amounts so that we could gather people every year and and do the important business and thanks to the generosity of sponsors we also had a bit of money left over that would go to running the organization after that so a combination of sponsorship a low level of donations of people who would just contact us and and say you know we think what you're doing is great have some money, which obviously is amazing. And we we also would, would make applications for, for project grants uh, to do specific things like sets of regional meetings or um, particular pieces of research. So we kind of got along quite well for a while on that combination. That all changed with COVID. And obviously we needed to massively ramp up what we were doing and also we weren't going to be able to do venues day last year. So sadly, that had to be canned. Um, The generosity of everyone has been quite amazing. I mean, we've raised nearly four million pounds since COVID struck. And that is a combination of music fans. I mean, doing crazy sponsored things for us making donations for particular venues or for Music Venue Trust as a whole, giving really generously when an artist streams, buying merch, merch has been just awesome. And so there's also been so many creative people creating things to sell or events to happen or things to do in support of Save Our Venues. So that's been wonderful, you know, photographers, artists, just not just musicians, you know, lots lots of people just coming together to show their love. So artists doing streams, obviously, has been incredible. Or or doing things, the Dead South did a, a bingo game the other day and money raised from that went jointly to Music Venue Trust and the Canadian and American bodies that do the same thing. But we've also had support from music industry organisations. So we, we had donations from... Um, Amazon Music, we had a donation from Sony, uh, Beggars Group, uh, SJM, you know, lots of 
music industry players who said this is an ecosystem and we need the grassroots music venues to survive so that has been amazing and there are lots that I haven't mentioned there mm. um some brands did activations for us and made donations for particular things so Cadbury's decided that their promotion of Orange Twirl was going to donate to save our venues <laughs> gave directly us, they gave, yeah I mean you know if somebody phones me up and says we're going to do this and I'm like yeah okay you're you're a relatively okay company that sounds great thank you yeah you know um and then the other big thing that happened is the mayor of london's culture fund uh basically passed a huge chunk of money to music venue trust not only to provide the support in london that was needed for venues but also money for us to distribute to the venues that that through our research were the most in need so it was money that came direct from the mayoral fund but was distributed through us so that that was incredible as well because prior to covid we'd never given any grants out we weren't a grant giving body but thanks to the generosity of people who've donated to save our venues and this mayoral money we have actually given out quite a lot of money direct to the venues who most needed it to fend off the landlord or you know settle this bell this bill that was in danger of closing them down or so yeah it's it's been an absolute jigsaw of people helping and you know and sometimes just artists doing things and Foo Fighters decided that they would donate some money from a rerun of an iconic t-shirt that they had and that money's just landed in our account wow that's really amazing to hear just everything but yeah it's so cool and I mean I don't see why this shouldn't happen like it's so necessary um with there being basically no money nowadays in recorded music through streaming like an artist needs live music and their live gigs and stuff to really stay afloat so um yeah it's really great to hear that the music industry's valuing this and hopefully it continues yeah I think I think the ecosystem has been highlighted as never before you know we really are to use a a very tired phrase we really are all in it together you know everybody in music needs everybody else to survive as much as possible otherwise none of us get to come back and we've all heard heartbreaking stories of you know particularly live crew having to find other work and some of them will come back some of them may not be able to but at least we're we're more aware now of what it takes all these different people that it takes to put gigs on to tour to to do the things that that people only see the end result of and you know they might look at say three four people on a stage and go yeah you know dozen people involved in this no (laughs) A lot of people involved in it. Yeah. yeah. We've been talking recently about how gigs should have like end credits like films do. <laughs> yeah, and about how cool. amazing how amazing it would be if you could actually name check all the people that yeah. went into delivering that live show. Because of course, a lot of audiences, if they're not involved in music, might not realize how many people it is yeah. that it takes to create this experience. Even like in a small room, there's still bar people the band the uh, sound engineers like yeah there's so many I mean I wouldn't even have that much of an idea but yeah that's crazy um so are you supporting though just the venue and then they're distributing it to maybe the uh the people who work there like if they have an in-house sound engineer or are individual people also in this umbrella of like grants um we we have worked quite hard to direct venues where to apply for the different bits of what they do so the money that we've been able to distribute is to venues that have the most urgent need and that's usually because they have outstanding bills or things that have to be paid in order to pay the people in the venues, we've been trying to give every venue the advice about which government grants or local authority grants or, you know, which which mechanisms there are as far as possible that they can apply to 
to get money direct for those things. Mm -hmm. Now, sadly, in every venue, there are going to be freelancers who have just missed out. And I think we all know in the creative industries, this is the biggest concern is, is you know, the, the many, many freelancers who do a range of things. Everyone was encouraged to have portfolio careers and then they've been left with no nowhere to turn when something happens. And that's been really tough. But what we've tried to do is suggest as and help as many different application processes as possible for all the different bits so that a venue has like a stack of different things they're doing to deal with those different aspects of their venue yeah so do you think that after things begin to open up will you continue this grant um funding giving uh, aspect of music venue trust or you'll just go back to the strategic consultancy kind of thing I think it's a really good question and I guess it comes back to what I was talking about about working out like the next stage I we had what was called an emergency response service prior to COVID and we turned that into our crisis service Mm -hmm. Um, I think there will always be call for some sort of crisis support because we should be the organization that a venue turns to if they have a threat But a lot of the time, that threat is not about throwing money about it. What what we've really learned, and this is Clara's specialism as the venue support manager, a lot of the time, the venue comes to us and they say, we need money for that. And Clara will work out that actually what they need is some legal advice or a strongly worded letter or an approach to the local authority or a conversation with the local MP or some specialist advice from an acoustician or a planning guru or and so sometimes what looks like it needs money actually doesn't what it needs is information put in the right manner to the right people so it's not impossible that we won't try and keep a pot of money that's that's there for when it really is money that's needed Mm -hmm. but I think what we've really learned is that a lot of the time it's about directing people to other money because we don't ever want to be like an Arts Council England or a Creative Scotland or an Arts Council Wales. You know, we don't want giving out money to be a big thing we do. It's an absolute last resort thing. We've got lots of other stuff to get on with that's that's really about advice and direction and helping point them in the right right direction of things that already exist. Mm -hmm. And how can just everyday people get involved in I don't know promoting is there is there a way to get involved or is it mainly just your network that's doing these things um if you want to get involved in supporting grassroots music venues generally go to gigs (laughs) exactly (laughs) the best way to support a grassroots music venue is to use it yeah it's there's there's quite a gap sometimes between people who claim they really value their venue and their actual activity which you know they might go once or twice a year Mm. the best way to show that you care is to go it's to buy a ticket and go along and buy a drink and be part of a show and be an active member of the venue community I mean obviously if, if you've got more time and you'd like to volunteer or you'd like to help do a fundraiser or or you know that's great but the main thing is is putting your words into action and supporting that venue. The probably the other thing that people can really do is tell their local authority how much they love their local venue. Because the other thing that's become really clear to us in our work is that most of the time governments or councils only hear about a music venue if somebody wants to complain about it. And there'll always be a certain part of the community that are really good at writing the complaining letter. People that really value things are less good at writing a letter saying, I think this local business is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And for too long, our venues have been perceived as bars with music or nightclubs or, or, you know, things other than cultural hubs and particularly me coming from an arts and culture background, my absolute mission is to get more recognition for grassroots music venues as being as 
important to the local town, the local city as an art centre or a theatre or an art gallery. You know, the, these are places of cultural importance, but they're also of real social importance for that community. You became part of the boiler room community. You know, mm. that that's really, it's really important. Quite often people feel more at home in a venue than they, they might do in any other place that they go. It's It's where they meet their people. Yeah, And so they have real importance in communities. And I think we've still got quite a lot of work to do to make that understood by the people who, who govern those communities to, to really explain to them that that music venue, yeah, sometimes it might be loud, but it's actually really important to that place. Exactly. Yeah. I'm living in Berlin at the moment. And I mean, clubbing is the thing here. And even it took a long time for a the government to say clubs are a music venue so they'll get the same support as everything else and these clubs have been closed now for a year no one knows what it's gonna really look like when if and when they can reopen and yeah like when you think of Berlin you think of clubbing and it's it's so integral to the the city and people move here specifically for that so yeah. absolutely but but to to reassure you club commissioner working really really hard yeah. And, you know, part of the reason that Berlin is a clubbing hub is that they do have nightlife representatives. They do have, I mean, we, we, we're part of a European network called Live DMA. So we know the guys at Club Commission mm -hmm. and you know, they have a lot of the same conversations that we do about the cultural importance yeah. of live music. And of course, in live music, we include electronic music. There's an amazing project about to come out that Fabric are doing, taking DJs out to London landmarks to highlight that the music that happens in Fabric is culture. Yeah. So, of course, when we talk grassroots music venues, we're not just talking boys or girls with guitars. We are talking yeah. live music in generally. And obviously, that, that clubbing music, that clubbing scene is very much part of that as well. Yeah, well, I hope everything gets better soon and we can return to how things used to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I just wanted to thank you. I've gotten through all my questions now. So, uh, oh no, I do have one more question, which I'm asking everybody, which is just generally, what is a piece of advice that you would give for entering into the music industry? Like, what do you wish you had known? when you started Music Venue Trust? Um, okay, well, I maybe came to it quite late. So if it's more aimed at younger people and getting into the music industry, I would say that it is an industry that thrives on people getting in, and in there and doing things to demonstrate their interest and their commitment. So to go back to my awesome core team, Clara, Sarah and Mena all volunteered for Music Venue Trust before they came to work for us. So I would say that if you love live music and you think it might be for you, go and find an opportunity to get involved in a local venue, to find out how it works, to meet people there and find out what they do. And just to kind of build up a network of people because you never know where people are going to end up and sure. they don't know where you're going to end up either. But just to give things a go, because I think it really is an industry that is built on doing rather than just talking about stuff. I mean, I've met the most interesting people over the last seven years and most people had really strange roots into what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't all go on a work in the music industry course. <laughs> yeah. so I think the thing is if, if you're passionate about music try and give lots of things a go and start talking to people and building experience and um, try and be noticed for all the right reasons that's nice I like that and yeah as you said like I did do a music business degree but the reason the podcast is called all the gear but no ideas because yeah I've got this piece of paper but there's still so much about the music industry I don't know and I will never know really until I start to do more in it so yeah it yeah I really think the experience is so important because mm -hmm. you you will be I mean I, 
I'm sure your tutors were great on your course, but <laughs> the more people you meet, the more you'll find inspiration and, and also just see how other people navigate it and how they do things. And, you know, I I have one journey, but there are so many different routes and stories. And basically, if you like people, there's no better industry to be in because it's full of amazing people. Yeah. But you only meet them if you put yourself in the opportunities. So you have to put yourself forward and say, can I help with that? Yeah. And that's how you'll build experience. And hopefully that will lead to new opportunities. Yeah. And that's what this podcast is doing for me at the moment. making some really new opportunities and meeting some really great people, including yourself. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, yeah. So thank you so much for joining me and teaching me about grassroots venues and I've had a bit of like nostalgia in my head about how great these gigs have been in the past years and just itching to go back to one in the in hopefully by the end of this year but yeah who knows I was gonna say I think we're all really itching to get back to it so yeah fingers fingers crossed that it's it's not going to be too long yeah my family and friends um live in Australia so for them it's fine and that's a that's a difficult thing to go onto yeah. Instagram and watch a story of someone at a gig. <laughs> I know. I think we we've all got envy, haven't we, of watching people in Australia or New Zealand doing things. But but I think I think we have to be optimistic that we will be allowed to get back to this thing we love, this live yeah. music experience. Yeah. So people can find the music venue trust online across all platforms just by yeah, searching Music Venue Trust, I guess. We, yes, we yeah. are Music Venue Trust on everything. Our website is musicvenuetrust.com and we are just Music Venue Trust on just about every platform. Um, or, and the Save Our Venues campaign is saveourvenues.co.uk, I think. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'll find the links and put it in anyway. Yes, thank you, Beverly, for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of All the Gear But No Idea, created by me, Sophia Hughes. If you enjoyed it, you can like it and leave a review wherever you're listening. And be sure to tell all your music industry friends to have a listen as well. You can find me on Twitter at allthegearpod or on Instagram at allthegear.podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.